0: Okay, episode three of Laid Off, the Blair Thomas podcast, available everywhere. If you need a link to subscribe, head to my website. It's BlairThomasMedia.com. Or just say, hey, Alexa, play the Blair Thomas podcast. And she'll do it, because we're friends now. It's pretty awesome. This is the biggest episode yet. It's Brad Austin, my old boss, my old friend, and he's going to join me for a full hour. And there's a lot to get to. Uh, You'll find out what he's been up to for the last couple of months. You'll hear all about the time he accidentally insulted Luke Bryan. A crazy Taylor Swift story that shows you exactly why she is a superstar, and everyone knew it when she was even 15 years old. Plus, the time Brad made Cheryl Crow cry. Yeah, that really happened. We'll get into that right now. Brad Austin, let's bring him in. All right, so joining us via Zoom in the middle of coronavirus and self-quarantining and social distancing and everything else. I've got my good friend. I've got the owner, CEO of Brad Austin Management with Sam Grow, purveyor of Wine Wednesday on Wednesday nights, lover of all things cheese and love and harmony. It's Brad Austin. What's up, man? What's going on,
1: Mr. Thomas? How are you, my friend?
0: Dude, it's been a weird, uh, I don't know, month and a half. I've joined the uh, recently departed crew. Uh, I've joined the team. Are there T-shirts? Like, wh- what do I do?
1: Well, the first thing you do is you have to find a
0: purpose because the worst part about being
1: unemployed is that you get into that. I have nothing to do mindset, Mm. but we do have t-shirts. We do have really awesome, like private, you know, knock three times on the door (laughs) parties. Um, So we'll get you invited to all that stuff. So you don't feel left (laughs) out.
0: Yeah. So I'm at the point where I haven't really like, I don't know if I haven't processed it yet or because I guess everyone deals with things differently. But like when the day I got like, go, oh, I didn't cry. I didn't yell. I wasn't angry. I just kind of just went into like, what do I do now mode? Was there a point where you were angry at all or, or did you just go right into like now what?
1: Well, with uh, with my leaving XCY, it was a little bit different uh, because I although technically on paper, I was terminated. Uh, it was kind of a coordinated termination, so it was a little bit different. But in the past, when I've been fired, uh, because being in radio, you just sometimes get fired. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you go through the seven stages of grief. You get angry. Um, there's disbelief. There's fear. Uh, then there's sadness. I mean, you go through the whole cycle of it. It's like you know losing anything because when you when you do what we do, when you do radio and broadcasting, and you put yourself physically. And emotionally, you put yourself into your work. It becomes very personal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you're going to go through that. And if you haven't yet, I would say just, you know, don't don't artificially force it not to happen. Yeah. Let yourself go through the stages as they come. But, yeah, I mean, I'll just say right off the top, you got shafted, by the way. Yeah. You, got, uh-huh. uh, you got shafted pretty hard. <laughs> and, and I hate that for you because uh, you were one of the good guys and um, really – one of the shining stars of that radio station, for sure.
0: Thank you. Now, I appreciate that, because, you know, as you know, I feel like in this industry, all we do is try to just put ourselves in a position to be valuable, right? So no matter what, you know, you know things are going to change and formats and everything else, but you do everything you can to be the best on the air and be the best people to the clients and to the record industry people, whatever else, and you just kind of cross your fingers and hope for the best. That's kind of what I did. Um, But, you know, in a situation like yours, what were you slash are you most angry about?
1: Um, I guess the thing that uh, I'm most angry about is what happened after I left. Um, I'm not at all angry about the fact that I'm no longer at XCY because, really and truly, a lot of that was my decision. Um, but what they had asked me to do, without getting you know too deep into it, but you know, just from my side of the story, my my truth is. They basically gave me um, a name to start with, a name, and then recommended others that um, needed to be terminated. Changes needed to be made, and I didn't agree with that. I didn't want to go through with that, and selfishly, I didn't want to manage what was left of a station after we had to make those changes. So, what I got most angry about was not being put in that situation because that's business, and I understand it. I've been a manager for. A decade or two, uh, I've had to make those tough decisions. Uh, I've had to balance budgets. I get the business side of it, uh, but specifically, you know, the, when I launched my management company and took on Sam Grow as my first client, Sam and WXCY had had a long history together. Um, the listeners, the clients, he had done free shows for the radio station two, three, four times. Had open shows at the arena, and the very first opportunity that WXCY had to embrace a show with Sam Grow when they were asked to be the presenting station by Live Nation, they turned their back on him And in essence, turned their back on me. Mm. And I took that very personally, uh, only because of the fact that the person that was in charge of the programming of that radio station is specifically the person that they told me to fire that I chose not to fire. And the very first opportunity that I had to have some reciprocity for that generosity, I I was uh, promptly shut down. And that bothers me to this day. Um, But at the same token, the decisions that the radio station has to make, I respect because it's their business model and not mine. Uh, But it bothers me. It bothers me a lot because I could still be working at that radio station. I could still be making money at that radio station and I chose not to to protect other people. And the first chance they had to screw me over, they did.
0: Wow. I mean, it's and it's impossible not to take that personally. Well, I was really lucky, as you know, um,
1: and this is uh, this goes back a little ways, obviously. But uh, Bob Bloom was our was our boss. He was Mm -hmm. my boss as a general manager and he was your boss uh, uh, as the general manager of the station. He ran the ship and I couldn't have navigated through any of that without him. And I'm really super thankful that he was there. He built the radio station in 1989, put it on the air had been the only boss that that station had ever had, a remarkable human being, and nobody fought harder for that staff, myself included, uh, than Bob did. So being able to have somebody that I could talk that process through with, look, my number was going to come up at some point regardless. I was very convinced of that because outside of just running WXCY, my position was duplicated as the corporate director of programming. When they bought our station and the other 10 stations that Delmarva Broadcasting had, I had a certain title. They had that role duplicated by at least two other people in the new company, and there wasn't going to be a need for that service. So I understood that. But what I wasn't going to do is I wasn't going to interrupt people's lives and terminate people and try to pretend to manage through that, only then to wait for my number to come up. So a part of my decision honestly, was a little selfish because I just didn't want to be the guy that had to be the captain of the ship after it hit the iceberg. Uh, But also the other part of that was we had a very quick and early decision to fire somebody and probably kick the can down the field a little bit, kick you know, punt the ball away for a while. And we just chose not to do that. We didn't want to do that. And had Bob not been there to help me navigate through that and bounce things off of, would have made that a much more difficult transition.
0: Yeah. I couldn't imagine what Bob's feeling right now. Or if he's feeling anything at all. I mean, he's he's a grandfather now and you know, maybe he's just bouncing them on his knees and not caring, but it's probably well, he's not social distancing. He says, "Yeah,
1: I talked to him a little while ago. He says he he hasn't been able to see him since early March."
0: <laughs> I saw Bob. Where was I? At um we were at the Library Foundation Gala in Hartford County, and I go up and see Bob and I swear it looked like he was 15 to 20 years younger than when I saw him before.
1: The stress just melted off of them, right?
0: Instantly. Well, I
1: tell you what, one of the things I want to point out on this, because I know that there's obviously a lot of people that'll hear this that are fans of XCY. There's also a lot of people that'll hear this that are management or ownership of XCY. And I just want to say something very clear from the start. I would never have put almost seven years of my life into a radio station I didn't believe in. And I didn't believe in the mission of that radio station. And XCY is a fantastic radio station. Has been a great community steward for 30 years. What's happening now? I can't speak to because I'm not a party to that and the decisions that are being made inside. Paula, who is still there, and Tim and Jeff and the salespeople and the support staff. I have an enormous amount of love for them, and I will never go out and run that radio station down because I think it's a disservice to the years that I put into it. Because I know what that radio station has done over the last 30 years for the community, uh, but I do take great issue with the management and direction of that station right now. But I'm on the outside looking in, so I have to be careful. I can't really speak too much to that, but the decisions that they're making are public knowledge they chose. And they told the queen in Wilmington, we don't want to have anything to do with the Sam girl concert. So I went to WDSD and they jumped on board instantly. Uh, And we have a new partner in Delaware.
0: But I, I want to transition to you, a radio programmer for what? 27, eight years. Yeah. Almost 28, 27. Yeah. Which is just about as long as I've been alive. Um, Thanks for making me feel, I do have a lot more
1: gray hair going on up here, Blair.
0: Not saying you're a part of this. But I, I think that's amazing because, you know, to to do anything for almost 30 years is pretty gosh darn incredible, in my opinion. And I always had a respect for you as a programmer. And one of the things that you were really good at is identifying some of those artists that wanted to dive into the country music world. And over the years, like everyone's like, oh, I'm going to do a, a country ex- experimental album, like whether it be uh, a Darius Rucker or like an A.J. McLean. And when A.J. McLean from the Backstreet Boys said, I'm going to try this country thing. What is it about artists like A.J. McLean that differentiates him from artists who are just trying to dip their toe into the water and get right out?
1: Well, you know, I I was very honest with A.J. um, And and a lot of people may choose not to believe this story, but it's the God's honest truth. And if you could have A.J. on here, who would confirm this? Um, I flew out to Vegas to have lunch with A.J., and some people from his record label. uh, Because quite honestly, I was the guy that said, convince me you really want this. Not that I'm some sort of all powerful, you know, person, but when we have people like Sam Groh, who, you know, we'll talk about in a little bit, and we got new artists like Tennille Arts, and you know, we got people like a, a young Brett Young who starts coming onto the scene that really want this, and that's all they've been doing is country music. Why should a guy who's made tens of millions of dollars as a pop star, who might be bored right now. Why should we give him a seat at the table in country music? I want to know that you want it. And it's the exact same conversation I had, surprisingly, with Darius Rucker. So, to tell you the AJ McLean story, I'm going to go back to the Darius Rucker story. And his manager at the time was a guy named Doc McGee. And Doc managed Motley Crue and he manages Kiss and gigantic pop and rock management icon. And Doc, was on the phone with me. And he called me and he's got this real gravelly, like Danny DeVito voice. (laughs) What the hell's your deal with Darius? Why won't you play his music? And I said, Doc, he's the front man of Hootie and the Blowfish. He's got more money than Jesus right now. They're out on tour. Why does he want to come into country? Like, I don't buy this. Oh, you don't understand Darius. He loves country music. I'm like, You're right. I don't buy it, doc. The guy's Hootie. I don't buy it. So he goes, let me put you and Darius in a room together and he'll convince you himself. So he gets me a backstage pass to go see Darius on the Hootie and the Blowfish tour in Wisconsin at a casino. Yeah. I go to the casino. I go backstage. I meet all the guys in the band. And then Darius goes, hey, man, let's talk. And he pulls me aside. And he goes, so what's going on with you? And I said, dude, I said, I love letter cry. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. I said, but I don't get country with you. Why? And he goes, dude, he laughed. He goes, I respect that. He goes, I'm a black guy who's known as Hootie and I sing only want to be with you. Why would I want to do country music? I get Mm -hmm. it. He goes, do you know that my record label for the last five years has been telling me no to releasing a country album? He goes I've been trying to release a country album for five years. He goes, you have no reason to believe me. He goes, but this is the last tour of Hootie. We're going on an indefinite hiatus. All I'm doing is country. It's all I've wanted to do for five years. And my label keeps telling me no. So Mike Dungan in Nashville finally told me yes. And when this tour is over, we're announcing our retirement, our, our you know, indefinite hiatus. Yeah. I went, all right, well, look, give the guy a shot, right? Said all the right things. So came back, started playing his music. And of course, he did everything that he said he was going to do and has been a great country music artist since then. So fast forward to AJ, I guess I was kind of wanting to hear the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really hear that from him, but I wanted to give him a shot because AJ is a guy who could do soul music. He could do pop music. He can do country music. He's a very genuine artist and he's a very real artist. But he never really left the Backstreet Boys. They never really put that on the back burner. And that's what's holding him back is he's like, hey, I want to go out and meet some radio stations got to go. The DNA world tour is kicking off. We're going to Brazil. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather give that break as a country programmer to somebody who really wants to put the time in, to meet the audience, meet the fans, meet the radio stations. Country is a community. It's not a hit and run media.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, initially, you know, you have to put yourself out there if you're AJ, because as a parent, and you know, putting up money of his own, as opposed to just having someone steer the ship for you, and you show up and do the concert and take off. Like from what I understand, he was all the way in and treated it so seriously because I don't. You can tell when when that work is there, as opposed to just some guys is, hey, you know, I'll make a couple bucks and get out of it. I will say he did buy the lunch that day at the Cosmopolitan, but in the
1: greatest pimp move of all time, he and I are both smokers, so we yes. left the lunch. We left his record rep and one other person to go downstairs to the casino to have a cigarette. And we sat down at the bar right at the bottom of the escalator. And we're having a cigarette and the waitress comes over. We weren't intending to order a drink. And she goes, hey, do you guys want anything? And I said, no, I'm good. And AJ goes, yeah, let me get a double uh, Fireball and Red Bull. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she walks off. We're talking, having our cigarette. She comes back and he does the whole thing. Oh, man, I left my wallet upstairs. I had to buy that guy a $21 double Fireball and Red Bull uh, drink. So he still got 21 bucks out of me, but he had to pay for the lunch, which
0: was way more expensive. Oh, my God.
1: I'm buying a Backstreet Boy,
0: a double Fireball and Red Bull how many radio programmers do you think he pulled that on? Like, hey, ooh, I if would. smart, that... probably a few. And <laughs> so he did the whole thing. He did the
1: whole thing. Like, he grabbed his pockets. Like, oh, oh, oh. And then he, like, looked at me and looked at her. And when I left it upstairs.
0: If I were him, I wouldn't pay for anything anywhere anyway. I'd just walk up to the counter and say, I want it that way. And they go, oh, my God, it's you. And whatever you want is free. I would I would have not have paid for anything in the last 15, 20 years if I were him. Well, the funniest um, part about that lunch
1: is I knew uh, – uh, Nick from the Backstreet Boys. Yeah. And then I knew Brian. I couldn't tell the difference between Howie and AJ and the other guy, the really tall guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not Kevin. I forget what his name is. But I, so every time I had to like quiz myself because on every elevator door in the Cosmopolitan was the Backstreet Boys, all five of them lined up. So I'd have to go through and go, Brian, Nick fuck is that Howie or is that AJ? Like, so I sat down to have lunch with a guy and I wasn't sure if it was Howie or AJ. I'm like, that's AJ. Okay, good. All
0: right. <laughs> I did the same thing in Vegas. Cause I, we had a chance to interview him and hang out with him. I complimented his Jordans cause he had the Travis Scott Jordan ones on. I was extremely jealous cause they're really expensive, but I had not had a chance to meet any of the other backstreet boys. Do you have a Nick Carter story? You've met him before. I didn't know this.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I met all of the Backstreet Boys that same weekend, they were doing a show, uh, I think it was at the Cosmo. Uh, They brought some radio people back uh, to hang out. I will say this, Nick Carter, far and away the most uh, popular with the ladies, Yeah. Um, he was also one of the nicest guys. He came up to me and introduced himself to me and said, hey, I'm Nick Carter. It's a pleasure to meet you. What's your name? And I said, I'm Brad Austin. It's nice to meet you. It, it, you know, we, we talked for a second, then he moved on to somebody else. He worked the room amazingly well. Um, the one that surprised me was Howie. He was like in the corner eating cheese and like <laughs> pretending like he wasn't even there. Like you're one of the five Backstreet Boys and you're blending into the furniture for God's sakes. Like he was just off in his own little world. And then, you know, you'd watch like Brian walk in and he's like, eh. and then the tall guy, Kevin, or I forget his name. I forget his um, name too. He was really quiet. And then AJ walks in and he's like a rock star. I was surprised by that people, guys and girls just went crazy for him. And, uh, I will say this super genuine, nice guy, super talented, amazing artist. If he ever chooses country full time, I do think he's got a shot, but he's got to be willing to step away like Darius did, or no one's going to take him
0: seriously. Yeah. Yeah. At least now he's in an era where he doesn't have to take the Jordans off to be accepted into the industry anymore. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Brett Young and others.
0: Yes. Uh, So go back to more of those radio tours, because in the the music industry, artists, when they're first starting out, they they hop into a a van or a tour bus with their record label. And they make these visits to different radio stations around the world to initially introduce themselves, build that connection, but to also play some of the music and kind of start out with a, hey, I'm so-and-so and and here's my so-and-so. and. To go back to some of those radio tours, so as a programmer, you've seen literally everyone um, from, from Luke Bryans to, to the Brett Eldridge's of the world to Thomas Rhett's. Um, Was there an artist going back throughout your career that had a real savvy well beyond their years on their radio tour? Anyone that kind of sticks out as like a, you know what, like I can see that they have something up top that'll carry them to superstardom. Uh, the
1: one name that, that comes to mind instantly and without any hesitation is Taylor Swift. And a lot of people will hear this now in 2020 and go, Oh, well, of course, it's easy to say that now I have been a fan of Taylor's since the beginning. And I'll tell you a couple of stories about a radio tour, uh, where I just knew she was different than everybody else. At the time that she was on her radio tour, I was in, um, York, Pennsylvania. I was working at WGTY at the time. And Taylor Swift came with Scott Borchetta, the president of her record label, and her mom, Andrea. And the three of them took me out to dinner in an Italian restaurant in East York. And we were there, and we were talking, and Taylor was 15, I think, at this time. Wow. And super engaging when we would talk at dinner. Now, I've had dinner conversations with the Darius Ruckers, the Luke Bryans, males, females, duos, bands, you name it, anyone yeah. in country music. The eye contact that Taylor Swift had when you spoke to her or she spoke to you was incredible. It was incredible for a 35-year-old, let alone a 15-year-old girl. And she actually listened. It wasn't fake. She wasn't just looking at you because she was told to. You would say something and then talk for another minute or two. And then she would ask you a question about what you had said in that minute or two conversation because she was really listening. Mm-hmm. And then she performed. We closed down the restaurant. It was only the four of us left plus the wait staff. Scott Borchetta went out to the car and got her guitar. She performed, the kitchen staff came out and listened, it was a cool moment. But then I found out a story about Taylor uh, from somebody who took her on that radio tour besides Scott, that was Jack Purcell. He told me a story about Taylor uh, that blew me away uh, because it just went to spoke, It, it goes to speak to how intelligent she was and how much she thought everything through. Taylor would handwrite, as soon as she left the radio station and got back into the rental car or the bus, she would write a handwritten note, draw pictures on it, a stick figure of her and a stick figure of you and like a heart around it. It was kind of cutesy in a 15-year-old girl sort of way, but it was very genuine, completely handwritten, your name on it. Thank you so much for dinner at the Italian restaurant. I love seeing like all the detail. And then Jack said her thing was she wanted it mailed before she left town. So on their way back to the airport, she would force him because she had all of these cards, all these envelopes, all these stamps in her bag. He, she would force him to stop at a mailbox and she would look at the mailbox. And if there was too much grass growing around the mailbox or it looked kind of old, she'd make him go find a new mailbox because she was afraid they weren't picking up the mail on a timely enough schedule. So they would have to go find a mailbox that was well kept and clean. She'd put the letter in there because she wanted to make sure you'd get it within a day or two. So she'd try to mail it from the same town that she was in. So it'd it'd get there basically the next day or the day after. And that's just her mindset. That's what built her into a superstar that she is because that wasn't her mom telling her to do that. That wasn't the record label telling. That was her. That internal engine she had was
0: absolutely incredible. That's amazing. And what's nuts is... With any industry that you work in, so many people come up to you and say like, wow, you're really lucky to be a superstar or you really you really got a, a fortunate deal when it came to this job that you have. But what they don't see are the moments where you're looking for the right mailbox. To to send your mailers from, but what they do see is when you put the the miniskirt on and you're on stage. I think, like you said, that it really speaks to something that you can't really teach or coach into those who even they they try to. Well, it's like it's
1: like the meme, and this is now the second iceberg mention that we've uh, we've had on this uh, on this interview. But it's <laughs> like the iceberg meme where people only see the top ten percent, but they don't see the ninety percent under the water, which is the effort and the planning that goes into it. And I will go to my grave. Saying and somebody else could come along, I guess. Hopefully, before I get to the grave, Knockwood, um, that could change this. The two people that have done it the best in country music, Garth Brooks, was the first. Mm-hmm. He has like an uh, not a photographic memory, but like an eidetic memory, where he can remember people and places and dates and times. It's makes you feel like you're the only person in the room. Yep. And Taylor Swift, those mm-hmm. two people are the master's class because it's genuine. It's not forced. It's not a put on. It's not a record company shtick. It's them wanting to be that person. They're the two best at communicating with people that I've ever seen in my life.
0: Yeah. Garth specifically, I mean, we've had a chance, you more so than I have, but we've had a chance to be at different events with Garth and have interviews with him in person and over the phone. And the thing that stuck out to me about Garth initially was how he speaks to everyone the same exact way, whether you were the CEO of the company or the person cleaning the floors. And when he would enter our room, he would greet the promotions coordinator and he would greet everyone who was on the air. And he'd greet every single record. rep. And it's amazing. He tips his cap to every lady, every single person that he meets. And it's that's the kind of thing that, like you say, you can't really coach or teach. It's just something that you either have or you don't. And I think that that's what separates Garth Brooks from just about everyone else. He's the goat. And that that's one of the many
1: reasons why. Anytime he's sitting for an interview and a woman stands up, he stands. Mm-hmm. That's his southern, you know. And you can't, you can't fake that because when you fake that, you'll screw up sometimes. And I've been around him enough I've never seen him screw up. If he is ever sitting in a woman's stands, he stands. Yeah. If he's, you know, Trisha Yearwood walks into the room and I'm facing Garth, like I'm facing you and she walks in behind me and Garth sees her, but I don't, Garth will stand up. Wow. Just because she walked into the room. He'll take his hat off to greet somebody. That, you can't fake that because you'll screw it up if you're faking it, if it's not mm-hmm. genuine. And, and he's the greatest of all time. The female version of that is Taylor Swift. Wow. In wow, a is- room full of 100 people, she will make you feel like you're the only
0: one there. Is there anyone that you were wrong about that came through on radio tour and you're like, I think they could really turn into something. And then they didn't. And that maybe not didn't turn into anything, but uh, maybe not to the, the level that you were expecting.
1: Yeah, there were there were I mean, there were many people over the years that I believed in that didn't work out. And I always tried to find you know me, I'm a realist. I'm very brutally honest with people. Um, and that's not so I look tough or mean or, or better than anybody. It's just because I think honesty is the one thing that is in shortest supply in everything, in business, in music, and art, in everything. So I always try to be honest with people. And there are people that I didn't think were going to make it uh, that became gigantic stars. Leanne Rimes is one that I'm like, this yodeling, you know, (laughs) caterwauling, I I don't get it. Uh, And then there are people that I thought should have made it, and that list is much longer, that they just never had the shot. And it's for a variety of reasons, politics maybe, talent maybe, opportunity. I always say becoming a star in music is like hitting the lottery twice, Once, because you have to be blessed with the talent that gets you recognized, that gets you a recording contract or a songwriting deal, that's hitting the lottery once. You then have to hit the lottery a second time, which is to have the mass be exposed to you and accept you. And there are people who are super talented. You've met them. They've come through our performance stage. They've done conference room concerts with us. And you're like, my God, they're incredible. And 18 months later, nobody knows their name and they faded away. It's sad, but, you know, there's only so many seats at the table. It's like the the painting of Christ in the Last Supper. Like, you can't put 40 people at that table. There's only room for 13,
0: you know? Yeah, yeah. So you you talked about being brutally honest, and that's the other part of the job. And it's not always the the, the label parties where you just get to kiss everyone's butt and everyone's happy and sipping, and it's great. But there are some moments where, as a programmer, you have to say no no matter how big they may be. So um, have, have there been any moments where you had to look someone in the eye if they're a superstar and say, okay, I'm not feeling this and I won't play it?
1: Oh yeah, I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you an unintentional moment of honesty and I'm going to give you an intentional moment of honesty. Uh, yes. I'll give you the unintentional one first. It has to okay. deal with uh, Luke Bryan. So again, I was. this is was mid-2000s. Uh, Luke Bryan was on his radio tour, and nobody knew him. He was just getting ready to release a song called All My Friends Say, which ended up not being a number one hit for him. It was his very first single. And he came by the radio station uh, in York, WGTY. And he came into my office, very small office. You know my office at XCY. It was half that size. And back then, everything we got was delivered on CD. There was no digital delivery and we'll email you the song, everything. They would send you a CD single. So I had a stack about 15 singles high on the corner of my desk, which were songs that every week when I had to make a decision about what to add to the playlist, I would go through that stack. So when somebody sent me a new song, I'd put it in the stack, I'd listen through them and I'd pick out what I was going to play. Yeah. Well, Luke performed in our conference room for me and a couple of staff members. And then he came back to my office to kind of chit chat. And his record rep got a phone call and she walked out of my office down the hallway. And Luke and I were just back and forth talking and I needed like a decoder ring to understand him because he's like, man, I'm I'm, I'm from Georgia. (laughs) And I'm like, Jesus, this guy talks like he's straight off the farm. So he starts going through the stack of CDs that's on my desk. And I'm like, well, I'm safe. His music isn't even in that stack yet because they haven't even shipped it. They're just setting up the single as it's called. it would be coming in the next several weeks. So, he's going through it and he's like, hey, man, what do you think about this song? And it was, I don't know, some song from somebody. And I'm like, that's all right. You know, it's not a top priority. And He goes, man, what do you think about this song? And it was, you know, George Strait. And I'm like, oh, my God, I love that song. And he got to one in the stack and he goes, hey, man, what do you think about this song? And it was Good Directions from Billy Currington. Mm. Now, you have to understand... You have to understand that at that point, McDonald's was not selling sweet tea north of the Mason-Dixon line. Sure. We didn't eat turnip greens. or you know. <laughs> so I I just launched. I was totally honest with him. And I go, man, of all the songs you could have picked in that stack, and about this time as record reps walking back up the hallway, I go, of all the songs you could have picked out of that stack, that is the biggest piece of shit in there. I don't oh, fucking no. get that hokey shit. <laughs> and she walks into the room as I'm ranting, and she goes, what? She goes, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, he's asking me. I'm like this song is the biggest piece of shit. Like I don't fucking get it. It's hokey, and he just like has this smile on his face and he puts the CD back on the stack on my desk. And she looks at me and goes, "He wrote that," and I went, "Oh shit!" And I looked at Luke and he just died laughing. <laughs> so like six months or a year later, it turned out to be a huge number one for Billy Currington. Yeah. I saw him at a party in Nashville and he goes, up, he comes up to me and he goes, Hey, how's that hokey piece of shit working out? For you?
0: <laughs> he got the last laugh on you a little bit. And
1: he he's mentioned that a couple of, he hasn't in years, but he's mentioned that a few times since then. But it's like, I think he appreciated my honesty in the moment. Sure. And I think he realized not every song is going to be lo- It's like running for office. Jesus couldn't be on the ballot and get 100% of the vote. Somebody would go, I don't, I like Satan a little bit better. I'm voting for him. Like nobody's going to be a hundred percent. So that's unintentional honesty. Then there's a story <laughs> where I had told a record label. It was Warner brothers records. I had told them they had been working me on a song from Cheryl Crow for probably three months, Kevin Herring and Katie Bright and the whole crew at Warner brothers working me over on Cheryl Crow. And I'm same argument I had about Darius uh, before her. Same argument I had about AJ McLean after this story. Same argument I had with Sheryl Crow. You're a multi Grammy winning international pop star. Country cannot be what you want to do. I don't want to play a song unless it's the second coming song, like it's the greatest thing ever. And it wasn't, quite honestly. So I told the label, I'm not playing the song. Come on, play the song. I'm not playing the song. This went on for two or three months. And then uh, February hits and they invite all of the radio people into Nashville for the annual country radio seminar. And it's a chance for all the record labels to put on a special event where they do a little dog and pony show and they showcase their artists to all the radio people who are in town. Of course, there's one for Universal with MCA and, you know, all the big stars there and Sam Hunt and all that. And there's one for Sony and they got Jake Owen at the time and all their Brad Paisley. And then there's one for Warner Brothers. They've got Michael Ray, who's a new artist at the time. Dan and Shay just starting out. And Sheryl Crow is at the party. Well, Katie, Katie Bright, who's a dear friend of mine, she left the record world and she now works in radio in Chicago. She had been telling me like two weeks before this event, I want to get you together with Cheryl Crow because I think if you talk to her, you'll come around. And I said, Katie, don't do that. I'm not going to lie to your artist and tell them something different than what I'm telling you because then the artist, when I leave, is going to turn around and go, well, what do you mean he's not playing the song? He just said he loved it. You're an idiot. Yeah. I which said, which I, I wouldn't put to you in that situation.
0: It, it makes, I feel like as an artist, honesty is what you should strive for because at the end of the day, your goal is to get people like you to love it. So if you lie and say that you love something that's not good, A, it doesn't push them. And B, you're just, you're lying to everyone. But yeah, sorry, continue. Uh, uh,
1: you're 100% right. Now, you know, I, I knew that I was going to be put in a in a particular situation. And we talked about Bob Bloom earlier. Bob Bloom was with me on this trip, our boss. And he and I were sitting at this dinner, and I went, oh, shit. And he goes, what? And I said, Katie Bright just made eye contact with me. She's standing over there at a table with Cheryl Crow and Kevin and somebody else. I said, I think they're going to try to bring us over there. And Bob goes, I just want a picture with Cheryl Crow. That's all I want. You know, my daughter's love. Like, I just want a picture with Cheryl Crow. I'm like, well, I said, we'll see if they bring us over. I said, I've told them not to. And Bob knew the whole story. He knew I hated the song and didn't buy into it. Sure enough, Katie comes over and she goes, hey, do you guys have a minute? Cheryl would like to say hello. And I said to her as I was standing up, I said, you don't want to do this. (laughs) And she goes, oh, it'll be fine. So I think in her, her mind, it was put me in front of the superstar artist and I will be so awestruck that I'll just be spoon fed and go along with whatever they say and I'll kiss her ass and I'll tell her how great she is. And then they'll be able to get the ad for my playlist out of me. Well, it didn't quite go that way. So let me set the scene. I'm standing directly across one of those little small, tall cocktail tables from Cheryl Crow. So we're 12 o'clock, 6 o'clock, right across yeah. from each other. Yeah. Immediately to my right is Kevin Herring, who's the vice president of the record label, and he's about three sheets to the wind at this point. So he's a little glossy-eyed. And then immediately to my left is Bob Bloom. Well, in between Bob Bloom, who is at like my 3 o'clock, I guess, no, my 9 o'clock, and Cheryl, who's at my 12 o'clock, Katie Bright is standing in between those two at about ten thirty, so we start talking. And I know Cheryl has already been prepped on the fact that I don't like her music because she's a little cold at the start. Mm-hmm. So Cheryl says something, and I say, "It's a pleasure to meet you. You know, I'm quite a fan of your work. You've been uh, you, you've been hugely successful, and I congratulate you on all that." And being very polite, and she goes, "So you don't want to play my music, huh?" And I went, "Oh shit, here we go." Oh, God. And I went, well, Cheryl, I said, honestly, I said, if you look around this room, I said, every day as programmers, and I even mentioned Darius Rucker, the AJ thing hadn't happened. I said, we're asked to invest in people in country music that are five, seven, 10-year-long investments because we're a format of artists, not songs. We're not single-based, we're artist-based, relationship-based. I said, you know, one of the things that I have an issue with is that this is kind of a one-off project for you. And although I think the music is fine, you know, it's it's not my favorite music at the moment. But is there going to be something after this? Is this you investing in country and you're going to do another country album and then after that another country album? I said because look around this room, you've got Dan and Shay, you've got Michael Ray, you've got Chris Jansen. I said this label has asked me to invest in these people who only want to be doing just this, and I'm paraphrasing. Um, I was very respectful, believe it or not. And the more we talked, the more angry she got. And I could see a vein starting to pop out in her neck. Like she was literally talking to me through gritted teeth. And Katie Bright leaves the table. She has walked away due to the tension at this point. And Kevin Herring is sitting over there. all like He's swaying, letting the table hold him up. And Bob Bloom looks like he's watching a tennis match. He's going to me, to Cheryl, to me, to Cheryl. And we're going back and forth. And after about 10 minutes, she finally looks at me and she goes, I'm done with this conversation. Thank you. And she then, she doesn't leave. She just stays standing there, but then looks past me over my right shoulder. So here I am just standing there. Now, Cheryl Crow is no longer talking to me. She's not even looking at me. Kevin Herring is like, Durr. and Bob is looking at me with his iPhone out going, I just wanted a picture. So I go, well, I'm going, to the, I'm going to the bar to get another drink and I walk away and Bob follows me and he goes, the one thing I wanted is a picture and you pissed her off so bad that I couldn't even get a picture. Next morning, I'm standing in line at Starbucks at like 9am and my cell phone rings and it's Katie Bright. And I'm like, here's going to be Katie going, man, I'm so sorry I put you in that situation even though she walked away. Yeah. And I answer the phone and I'm like, hey, Katie, good morning. And she goes, are you okay? And I went... Well, I'm a little tired. I said, I'm in line for Starbucks, but I'm fine. Why? And she goes, I just wanted to check in on you and make sure you're okay. And I said, what? Yeah, I'm fine. She goes, well, last night didn't go so well. I said, no. I said, but you know, I I thought we were respectful in our disagreement. And she goes, well, Cheryl was really upset by your conversation. Uh, You made her cry. And I I went, what? I went, what? She goes, yeah. Uh, you made Cheryl cry, and her manager called our label president today and dressed all of us down and now, you know, we're in the situation we're in. You've made
0: Cheryl Crow cry. You made Cheryl Crow cry. <laughs> she never <laughs> cried when I was standing there. She was trying to be strong for you, Brad, and you just shut her down, man.
1: I did, but here's the thing. He who laughs last laughs, laughs best. Cheryl Crow has not done anything else in the country format since then and has not released any other country music. So I was right. And none of the music off of that album ended up being a hit at country radio. But yeah, yeah apparently, even though I told him, don't put me in that situation, you don't want that to happen. Uh, I still apparently made Cheryl Crow cry and I didn't mean to <laughs> because like soak up the sun and like, I'm a fan of Cheryl Crow. It just wasn't a fit for country radio.
0: Sure, sure, and thus the social assassin was born. Because I have seen your work, sir, and for for anyone who's ever been at a gathering with Brad, we will be out somewhere anywhere whether it's Nashville or in Vegas or even locally in our area and you have a way. Now, sometimes it's intentional, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but if you want to and it's strategic, you, sir, can absolutely clear a room with, with whether it's a rude comment or, or there have been times when you're just like you, a group of people are standing around a table and you really want the table. And you just like you, you approach the table like a freaking tsunami and say something that's so inflammatory that everyone clears out and we get the table. And I just want to say I absolutely love it. There have been times where we, we'd be at a party and we were with somebody Who's like really into a girl or something is like, man, she's kind of cute. And then Brad will be like, all right, here's the strategy. Then I'll go up and be a complete jerk to everyone in the room. And it'll be so vitriolic that you have no choice but to look like the good guy. It's kind of awesome. So congratulations, man. Thank you. I look, it all comes down to me just being honest.
1: And I think that when I look at a social gathering like that, I love toying with people in a way because everyone's like being fake and prim and proper. And I'm like, well, the hell with this. I'm just going to be me. So I'll walk up to somebody and not have to go over the top. I'll just be blunt. And, you know, it comes off maybe as a little rude or a little whatever, but people in that setting are like, it's like they're all at an audience with the queen. Like I can't believe he just said that. Oh my God. (laughs) And they'll slowly drift away. And I'm like, Hey guys, got a table. Come on over here.
0: (laughs) You know, I I've seen that across everywhere. And one of my favorite stories with you was when we were at the universal music after party in Nashville after the 2018 CMAs, this party, mind you, is filled to the brim with A-list celebrities. Brothers Osborne were there. I think Dirks was there. We split up and I come back to you and part of our group staring at a door, which was right next to the donut wall at this party, standing completely still. And I'm like, I'm like, what are you guys doing over here? Like what all of this commotion's going on, great food. And you're staring at this door. And you were like, Blair. Tom Hanks just went in there. I swear to God, he's in that room and he's not come out yet. And we're waiting for Tom Hanks to come out of this room. So I'm like, you guys are kidding. We're like, no, he's shorter than I thought he would be, but Tom Hanks is in there.
1: I'm like, Hanks is here. And and I was standing in front of the donut wall talking to Cassidy Pope and her now fiance Sam because we were talking about which donuts we want, and we spotted Hanks. And then I was, <laughs> I think I was standing next to Paula or Tom, I forget yeah. who it was. Yeah, and yeah. I'm like, Tom Hanks went in that door. And I knew that because. Down that hallway was Mike Dungan, who's the president of Universal. He had a private suite for the VIPs. It's where the artists would go to kind of get away from the limelight for a second to say hi People to Mike. Like yeah, to get away from the schmucks like us. So I knew down that hallway, and you, you were like, there's no way Tom Hanks is here. Why would Tom Hanks be here? So fast forward, what, 10 minutes later, Yeah. all of a sudden, there's this big commotion at the bar, and who is everyone taking pictures with? Tom Hanks's wife Rita Wilson yes. which therefore is all the proof we need that Hanks was in the building even though I don't think anybody saw him again the rest of the night he was in hiding
0: yes so then so Paula was at the bar with Rita Wilson and had like a full-blown like conversation they're taking pics together meanwhile the the two of us are, are standing there watching the door still and coming from my left was Lauren Elena and Lauren Elena walks up to you and I and she's like what are you guys doing over here? And we're like, Lauren, you won't believe this. Tom Hanks is in that room. He's not come out. She's like, shut up. You know how crazy she is. Shut up. No way. So then it becomes me, you, Bianca and Lauren, Elena staring at the door waiting for Tom Hanks to come out. Never did. Yeah, no, it's true.
1: We, the Hanks was in the building and I know I saw him and he was much shorter than I thought he was going to be. Uh, but the proof was in Rita Wilson hanging out at the bar. They don't go anywhere without each other. And Sure enough, she performed like the next night for something at the Ryman, I think. So, yeah, and yeah. he was there.
0: Yeah, and and at that party, Joe Diffie, he sadly, of course, passed a few weeks ago. What is your earliest Joe Diffie memory and what does he mean to you in your career? Uh, I will say this, when I got into country music and into radio, it was
1: 1992, 93. Um, and Joe Diffie was becoming a megastar at that point. Like his career was just blowing up you know, John Deere Green and So Help Me Girl, Third Rock from the Sun, all that stuff, through the early mid-90s. And then by the late 90s, uh, he was a superstar at that time. In country radio, then you had Garth, you had Alan Jackson, you had Travis Tritt, Trisha Yearwood, the beginnings of Martina McBride. Then you had people like Joe Diffie and Aaron Tippin and Diamond Rio. So Joe was very much like one of the six or seven biggest artists in the format. Every time I met Joe, He was the nicest guy on the planet, to your point. I never felt like Joe big-leagued me. I never felt like Joe looked past me in a room of people. And every song that guy sang, to me, had just a sense of honesty to it. And I think that's what a lot of people like about 90s country, like Brooks and Dunn and all that stuff, Travis Tritt. His music was so timeless and so honest. And this whole coronavirus mess, yeah. I, I think 80% of it is, is hype and fear and 20% of it is reality. And certainly there are people who are affected by it. And certainly there are people who have passed away from it. Uh, but when Joe Diffie uh, got it and died within a week, um, that hit me hard. That really resonated with me because he's, he's such a great guy and a nice guy. And I hated to hear that. But yeah, I mean, Joe was one of those people that in a room, you would want to go talk to him because he was just a nice guy. He was an everyday average guy. And one of my favorite stories that I never saw firsthand, but I had heard multiple times from record reps and everything, Joe was a a heavy smoker very early on in his career. And for a period of time, he quit smoking. And to keep himself occupied on the tour bus, he took to knitting. So he would be in the back of the tour bus crocheting and knitting to keep himself busy on the road because he didn't want to smoke cigarettes. And he'd make like pumpkin potholders and like scarves and shit. Like that's what he did on the back of his tour bus, try to keep himself from smoking. And I'm like, any guy who will take up grandma's favorite pastime uh, (laughs) is probably a pretty good dude.
0: And someone out there right now is pulling their green bean casserole out of their oven with a Joe Diffie knitted oven mitt. And that's amazing. I didn't know that story, which is amazing. Um,
1: Yeah. His nickname was smoking Joe Diffie. And then he tried to quit smoking. And I don't know if he ever went back to it or not, but, Knitting is how he kept his hands and his his himself occupied on the roads before, you know, the era of video games and handheld devices and smartphones and all that. He would just sit there and knit whenever he got nervous.
0: Yeah. Yeah. God rest his soul. Hey, uh, before we wrap up, I want to talk about you, what you're getting into these days, what your new projects are. Tell me what's the current and future. Obviously, with coronavirus, things are different now, but what's going on with you?
1: Well, I got to tell you, man, uh, I, I was very lucky. And I um, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, when one door closes, another one opens. Yeah. Uh, I remember calling Sam uh, just as a courtesy, if nothing else, because we had built such a great relationship, especially as a business relationship of radio station supporter and an artist. And I just told him, I, maybe it was even a text, not a, a phone call. And I just said, hey, man, I want to let you know, over the course of the next two or three weeks, I'm going to be transitioning out at WXCY you know, some changes taking place and it's the right thing. And I just wanted to give you a heads up that things will be changing. And he shot me a text back. Oh my God, I'm sorry to hear that. Let me know if you need anything, blah, blah, blah. And that's all we said. So fast forward two or three weeks later, and he called me and he goes, Hey man, what are you up to? And I said, well, I'm interviewing for, I was still at XCY. I had like a week or two left on my deal. And I said, well, I'm interviewing for this record uh, rep job, or I'd be a rep for this record label working in the southeast and." I'm talking to this company about working maybe the West Coast, and I'm looking at doing this radio job that they want me to do in Idaho, some people are talking to me about that. He goes, huh? You no, know, man, well, it sounds like you got some some things going. That That's really good. And we talked, and that was it. And he called me back later that night, and he goes, hey, he goes, I got a crazy idea. He goes, I don't want you to take those other jobs and work for another artist. He goes, would you ever consider managing me? Mm. This was like seven o'clock at night. And I remember my girlfriend Ryan at the time was at work. And I was like, No, I said, Sam, I've never managed anyone before. I said, I don't, I've managed a staff of people. I've never, you know, navigated an artist's career. I know nothing about that. And he goes, You know, all the people in radio, you know, all the people in Nashville, you know what you've seen artists fail and you've seen artists succeed and you know what it takes. He goes, There's nobody better to do this than you. And he goes, Think about it. I went, okay, I'll think about it. So Ryan got home that night at like 10, 1030 from her job. And I sat down on the bed and I said, You're never going to believe the phone call I got. And I told her. And at the same time, we both went, This feels like perfect. It feels like the right thing. Mm. And I had no idea what I was going to do when I knew I was leaving XCY. I had been interviewing for some stuff, uh, had had one offer that wasn't going to work out. I had had another person say they were about to give me an offer. And out of the blue, Sam called me and asked me that question and I decided to jump Uh, all, you know, full faith leap that this could be something I could do and I would be happy doing. So I created Brad Austin Management LLC, drove to Nashville. We signed the paperwork live on Facebook and I've been doing that basically since October 1st. And I can say this, one of the greatest pieces of advice from another artist manager that I got was that there's no rule book. When you wake up, like, I, I always ask people who manage artists, I'm like, what do you do on a Tuesday afternoon at two o'clock? And they're like, you'll figure it out. Like, you go play golf or you make a phone call. Like, there, there's something to do or there's nothing to do.
0: Yeah. Sometimes
1: doing nothing is important. So, it's been great. And I've got to tell you, um, Sam, I've got to brag on Sam uh, because we just last Friday released new music. And in three days, he streamed 30,000 times on Spotify alone. He's been added to three of the massive iHeartRadio playlists. Um, He's been added to four, three or four playlists on Apple Music. Uh, We've had radio stations in Rochester, New York, and Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Delaware, um, Tennessee, Virginia, reach out, wanting to see if Sam will do some stuff with their station and talk about playing the song. So things are going great. And it's called Song About You, shameless plug, if you haven't heard it. Go on YouTube, Spotify, Pandora, Apple, wherever you get music and listen to it. One of the things I told Sam when he was recording this album, and I came in right at the beginning of that process, is you have to step up. Everything you do has to be bigger than the last thing you did. It's how you grow. And I can say without question that his new album that'll be coming out later this year does that. And this song in particular, showing Sam's maturity as an artist and a songwriter, this is a song he didn't write. Mm-hmm. It's a song that was written by Taylor Phillips, who wrote "Hurricane" for Luke Combs, wrote "Homesick" for Kane Brown, um, and wrote another Kane Brown hit, and a couple of other songs. He's got four or five number ones now. And Taylor gave the song to Sam two years ago and said, "I want you to sing this." They were really good friends. Sam's like, "Dude, I love that song." Well, Taylor's publishing company, Warner chapel did what they have to do, and they pitched it around town. It got put on hold by Low Cash, got put on hold by Eli Young Band, and a couple other people, and. Sam's like, dude, I'm finishing my album this week. If I'm going to record this, I need permission. And they, they couldn't free it up in time. So he went, he put out Love and Whiskey, and it wasn't on there. Locash lost their record deal. Eli Young Band's record cycle got changed around, and they, they tabled it and went with Love Ains. And all of a sudden, Sam started recording for a new album. And Taylor came back and said, if you don't record the song, I'm going to be pissed off. This is a Sam Gross song. You need to record it. I don't want to give it to anybody else. So he came to the studio, Taylor came to the studio the night that Sam sang it, was blown away by it, and we made it the first single off the album, and the response in four days has been gigantic. And I couldn't be more lucky or thankful to be in the position that I'm in. I miss radio sometimes. I still do the part-time thing. I'm like the relief pitcher in the bullpen. When 92.5 XTU in Philly needs a relief pitcher, they call me. Raz gets on the phone and goes, hey, man, need you on Easter Sunday. I'm like, all right, I'll drive up, do four or five hours. Um, so I still get to do that. But at the same time, missing that pales in comparison with the gratitude and the, the love that I have found in being a manager. Yeah. And it's really been an eye-opening experience. Going back to our earlier point about fear, the fear of the unknown. You're in that uncharted water now. Is another radio station job in your future? Is podcasting going to become a career for you? Are you going to go do something else? Don't let fear hold you back. Be open to anything that resonates with you. And all I can say as advice, not that you asked for it, is when you know, you know. Like when I got that phone call from Sam and I sat down and talked with Brian, it just felt right in my soul. It felt right mm-hmm. in my gut. And I knew that it was the right thing for me to do at the time. And it's been gangbuster since and we're looking to expand. I'll take on some other people to manage in addition with Sam and hopefully he'll be able to write with them. He's a great producer on the side. He can work with these new artists to produce them take them out on tour and kind of build a roster together, uh, which
0: is our ultimate goal for this year. Hey, I love that, man. And good things happen to good people. The way that it happened, you know, you said luck, but I don't think luck is, you know, sometimes you, you put that work in in certain places and, things happen for you and I don't think any of it's luck. And I, I got to say to you, you've been killing it. He's been killing it. I was looking at some, some numbers from you guys and you've been doing amazing work. So, I mean, I mean, now you've literally crossed over to the dark side from the radio to, to the other, one, which is fitting because what is your ringtone on your phone, Brad? What is it? It, it is.
1: It's the Imperial March, the Darth Vader theme <laughs> from star Wars. It is. I am. I'm literally now Darth Vader. I'm the guy in the helmet. I call radio stations and they find reasons to send me to voicemail. It's a beautiful thing.
0: (laughs) It's awesome. Things come full circle. I got to say, you know, for for everything that you've done for me, I got to say, thanks. And thanks for doing this. I mean, this is my first ever guest. I had no one else in mind, but you and the fact that you found time between managing Sam and doing your own things and going crazy with coronavirus and wine Wednesday, cutting the grass, lighting bonfires. You had a chance to do this. I, I really do appreciate it, man. So thank you.
1: Well, look, Thank you for thinking on me. And uh, you know, I love you and I've got a great amount of respect for you. And I will say this um, you have said a couple of times, you said it on Facebook and you just said it now. Thank you for everything you did for me. Well, you're welcome. But I will say, you and I started about the same time and you were the first person in that building I ever really worked with. Uh, because when I started, I was three to seven in the afternoon and the program director. You were my traffic guy in the afternoon. Every day I worked with you was through the glass, yep. we had banter and whatever. And I knew from the first week, and I went and told Bob, he can he can confirm this fact. From the first week that I worked with you, I told Bob, I said, because when you're a new manager, your number one job when you start someplace is to get the landscape, is to take, sure. uh, take stock of everything. Yeah. Who are your high performers? Who are your lower struggling performers? I told Bob in that very first week, I said, I don't know what we're going to do with Blair yet, but that kid has got a huge future. And when every opportunity came along, you had earned the right to be advanced the way that you were and put onto the morning show and being a full member of the show and all that, you earned all that. So thank you for the way that you worked. Thank you for bringing your talent every day. And uh, I was just the lucky, fortunate guy to be able to open the door of opportunity. But with every step, had you not lived up and, and exceeded what we thought you could do, another door would not have been opened up. So you created your own destiny. And whatever you decide to do, you're gonna be amazing at. And I can't wait to see what's next. And if you ever need a little bit more shit talking, invite me back on your podcast. <laughs> we'll do it.
0: Anytime. I'll find brother. some more people that I made fly or something. <laughs> something. I don't know. I'm sure you have a Rolodex of names, and I can't wait to see who's on it. We will do this again soon, man. I appreciate all that, you know, and you know, it's who knows what's gonna happen next, but I have yeah, to ask the me.
1: wedding. What, when's the wedding now?
0: What <laughs> do we know? Okay, so A week and a half before everything happened with my job situation, we had come to a solid-ish conclusion as far as the venue, caterer, everything else. And then that was right before coronavirus really took off. Like That was before Tom Hanks and Rita had it and everything else. And that restricted our ability to go on visits to venues or try food. So we haven't had a chance to do any of that. And then a week or so after that, I lost my job. So at this point we still have an idea for, for what we'll do, you know, because of COVID-19 we're probably going to have to move it to next year anyway, but things are kind of on a hold because I, you know, I don't know if this is just my, my instinctual male behavior. I can't allow my fiance to marry a guy who doesn't have a job. That's called Uh, a sugar
1: mama Blair. She's called a sugar mama. now.
0: Man. You know, I, there's a part of me that would feel like that's amazing. The other 99% says, there's no way I can allow that to happen. So, it's it's essentially, we're on an indefinite holding pattern uh, as far as everything else, which is fine. You know, we've got time now because of, you know, our, our health situation across the world. But um, I'd say, I don't want to spoil anything, but we do have a, a remote... Uh, time as far as when things could happen, but things are going well. It's just things are, the breaks have been pushed pretty far at this point.
1: Well, look, I, uh, I want to be there, especially if you need a social assassin to yes. kind of work the room. I'm happy to do that. <laughs> I love your brother, Brian. I know anytime I get in a room with Brian, crazy sh- shit happens. Your mom's a sweetheart, Marissa, obviously I adore. So when that big moment does come, if you need the social assassin to show up, you just say the word and wherever
0: I am at that point, I'll be there. Love it, man. Thank you. I think I just invited myself to your wedding, FYI. Hey, any self-invitations get immediately accepted. So that's how that happens. So. Would
1: you would you expect anything less from the social assassin? Whether you invite me or not, I'm going to be there.
0: So what, just deal what, with it. What you don't know is I'm also inviting Cheryl Crow and you guys are sitting at the same <laughs> table. So, so have fun with that. I have that fun with that. Jane will be so
1: far out of her neck.
0: And Katie Bright's my caterer. She's making salmon cakes for everybody. It's going to be awesome. All right, brother. Hey, man. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate you, man.
1: You got it. You take it easy, my man.
0: A lot of fun. Brad Austin, thank you so much for joining me and uh, thank you for listening. Laid off the Blair Thomas podcast. Subscribe, follow and tell a friend to tell a friend to leave five stars everywhere. I'll talk to you guys soon.